Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Yeah, excuse me, I was <laughs> hearing my intro and yawning. That's not a good sign. Suppressing, trying to. Um, hi, happy Monday. Uh, consequential Monday for Pittsburgh hockey fans. Uh Whatever. It's only a game. I don't know. What am I going to talk about? Uh, let me read you something, okay? It's just a, it's, it's from a test for high school students. And uh, it's just a little, it's a sentence. It's a rather long sentence, but it's a sentence. So let me read you this and see if you have a sense of what it's about. Against the luminous sky, the rays of her halo were spikes of darkness rowling the air. Shadow flattened the torch she bore to a black cross against flawless light, the blackened hilt of a broken sword. Liberty. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I read it and thought, what the hell? I mean, I was trying to follow the... First of all, I didn't know what even... Do you know what rowling means? I never heard that word. R-O-W-E-L. Darkness. Spikes of darkness rowling the air. I don't know. So, it turns out that this passage was part of the reason um, thousands of students who had to take this test, which is a very consequential test in terms of, you know, they're getting into colleges and stuff like that, specifically pointed this out and said, are you kidding me? <laughs> and so I read it and thought, hmm, I'm a teenager. This I don't know what the... Anyway, I, the thing is, okay, did, did you get it, though? Did you get a picture? When I mean, obviously, this is a uh, person painting a picture of a, of a woman, right? Against the luminous sky, the rays of her halo were spikes of darkness rowling the air. Shadow flattened the torch she bore to a black cross against flawless light, the blackened hilt of a broken sword. Liberty. Now, I'm such an, I mean, I'll tell you, I didn't get it. I'll, 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 I'll tell you now. It's, it's, it's about the Statue of Liberty. Once you know it's about the Statue of Liberty, it makes sense. The spikes, the torch, because I was just thinking it was a regular woman. I was thinking spikes. Torches, rowling skies, was that do with liberty? I really, that's how out of it I am. So I feel for these kids who are protesting, especially because this is from a test, the most important test for high school students in Germany. 
all these kids in Germany are expected not only to read that English sentence, but to understand it. And here I am, a literate, old American whose only language is English. I read it and thought, huh? It was written in 1935 by Henry Roth from uh, a novel called Call It Sleep. And to think that, I mean, just stop and think. So German high school students take this intensive test when they're due to graduate, and this test is every bit as important as our SATs are. Uh, whatever they get on this test uh, will determine what kind of university they're going to get into. And what, a, I mean, first of all, be amazed by the fact that it's assumed that anyone going to the university in Germany is going to understand English at that level which a lot of Americans wouldn't. <laughs> High school kids in Germany who speak German, we don't speak German, and we don't even speak this level of English. Wow. Wow. So these are, this is the final hurdle for uh, students who are leaving high school, secondary school, in um in Germany and heading for uh, a university and they have to go through a battery of written tests and oral tests um, and also their own grades are, are figured into it. But this particular s test is the single most important factor for selecting which, which colleges they can even hope uh, to get into. Um, and for some reason, that specific, I'm glad to hear it, they rebelled against that part of the test because they said, what the hell? Are you kidding me? Against the luminous sky, the rays of her halo were spikes of darkness roweling the air. Jeez, you're a 17-year-old German kid. Unbelievable. And I have to tell you, it makes me nervous, again, about the fact that we are in a global economy. And uh, so our kids will, will be up against these kids, these European kids who already speak our language better than some of us speak it and speak their own and then probably speak another one on top of that and, and maybe even another one on top of that and we Americans are a little bit uh, I would think not quite ready for prime time unless of course you're one of those Americans who comes from a wealthy family because then by virtue of where you live, you could go to an incredible public school or you can go to a fancy schmancy private school. Uh, you will be given all of the, all of the benefits of, that money buys in our culture 
and uh, you'll be so far ahead of some poor genius kid born into poverty somewhere in rural America or the inner city um, who may be able in terms of just flat out IQ run circles around some of these rich kids but because opportunity is not available they'll never get anywhere we are such an unegalitarian country now uh, so we are s the opposite of what we purport to be the absolute opposite of what we purport to be and and what I find sort of most repulsive is all the rich parents and even those who don't think they're rich but they're rich <laughs> give you, it put you in the top five percent even top ten percent of Americans um, and you just go out of your way to give your kids every advantage to, in that rat race that your the elites uh, enter their kids in from the minute they're born um, so that they will be so far ahead who is telling me about a teacher that they not that they had but that they heard about who took his kids um, I don't know if they were outside I think they were outside and he put them in a straight line and then he just started saying things like okay if you only have a single parent take one step back if and on and on these questions about where they what their home life was um, boy, or where they came from maybe what their even religion was their gender was all this kind of stuff and he, the questions were perfect I can't remember any of them but so by the time he was done with these questions these kids were scattered and some of them were way in the back and some never made a step back and he told them this is where you're all starting from you're not starting from an equal place and of course the kids in the back were disproportionately of color they were of course kids who didn't have rich parents um, they didn't have the advantages of, of some and um, I don't think that's something that we acknowledge and I, I hate the fact that the haves that have parents just continue to broaden the space between their children and other children whose parents or guardians do not have access to what they have as if they needed any more advantage uh, it has always been thus but it is worse now truly worse and it bleh, makes me puke which brings me actually speaking of puke no it's not a story about puke uh, which brings me to this wonderful where is it where is it where is it oh here it is it's right here in front of me uh, this wonderful 
Uh, oh, I thought I could make it bigger, and I can't. Okay, this will tax me eyes, but I'm going to do it. Uh, this is a wedding announcement. And the woman who sent it to me lives in Maryland. <laughs> and she she sent me this with the this introduction. She said, years ago, maybe 20 plus years ago, I remember a show when you read wedding announcements from the newspaper. And... Uh, I, I remember doing this because they used to drive me crazy. You remember the ones where it would go on for for paragraphs about the bride wore a tulle gown festooned in Swarovski crystals with hand-embroidered appliqued blah, 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 blah. The bridesmaids were, and it would go on and on and on, and I just thought they were the stupidest, silliest, most ridiculous things imaginable. So I do vaguely, I mean, I, I, I vaguely remember, yes, doing this. I think I did it more than once. And then I, she said, you foo-fooed the long legacies of the brides and grooms' families, <laughs> the pedigree of their educations. And, I, and yeah, so-and-so is a direct descendant of blah, 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 blah. And then the braggadocio about what attended so-and-so school. Of the, uh, and, you know, nothing wrong with people being proud of whatever. But this was... I mean, particularly absurd. I mean, it was absurd. And I don't see them as much anymore. I don't know why. But man, this woman in Maryland caught a butte. A butte. This, I can't even begin. And there is, well, first of all, there's the lovely couple, not there's the the lovely couple who do not when you read the thing you think this must be she must be like a princess and he must be like this prince charming not okay i mean if they hadn't included the picture they would have been okay but i mean they do not okay fit listen to the verbiage uh on Saturday, January 14th, 2017, at the Episcopal, of course, at the Episcopal Church of Bethesda by the Sea in Palm Beach, Florida, Saville Collins de Montenay Fitzalan de Linen Lord, daughter, that's a woman, that's the the bride's name. I'm going to run by that baby again. Seville Collins de Montenay Fitzalan de Dinan Lord. Daughter of, oh God, I'll take a deep breath here. Doc, daughter of Mrs. Eleanor Louise de Peveril Collins Lord of Palm Beach and Dr. Jerome Edmund Lord of Boynton Beach, was married 
Geez, I'm in the same first sentence. Okay. Was married to Kenneth Lowell Harvey Oscar Johnson. Who? I mean, do you know anybody who's got f like four first names? Okay. I I don't. And both again. Okay. And he is the son of uh Mr. and Mrs. Kenneth Lowell Johnson of Barnesville, Minnesota. The double ring ceremony was celebrated by the rector, Reverend James Harlan. Here we go. The bride was attended by two matrons of honor. Her sister, Wallace Jennings, the pontiff Lord Hart, and her sister-in-law, Maria Yip, Lord, and two maids of honor, her sister Stavely, who named these kids? Her sister Stavely Hampston Dahodne Lord, and Dorian Warfield Damour Lord. The best men were the bride's brother, Hayes Alexander Fitzwarren Lord, and brother-in-law Andrew Richard Hart. The bride's niece, Ella Louise Fitzwarren Lord Hart, was the flower girl, and the ushers were John Buxton Sean Osgood and Hayes Lee Collins Lord. The bride, a graduate of the Fay School and Miss Porter's School, graduated from Georgetown University. She is a member of the D.A.R., the Daughters of the Colonial Wars, the Society of the Friends of St. George's, and descendants of the Knights of the Garter, and the Metropolitan Club in Washington, D.C. She is descended from the French Count Guarin de Metz and the English Baron Fulke Fitzwarren, who was... <laughs> at Magna Carta. They were the subjects of the famous 13th century manuscript, The Romance of Folke Fitzwarren. She was presented to society at the Infirmary Ball and International Debutante Ball in New York City. In the Bachelor's Cotillion in Baltimore, she was presented at all these things, at the Queen Charlotte's Ball in London, and was chosen to represent the United States at the Opera Ball in Vienna, Austria. Ms. Lord, here is the payoff. I mean, I read this, and absolutely, I, I wish there'd been a camera on me, because the double take almost required a trip to an orthopedist. Un okay, so after all of that, descended from Magna Carta romances, counts and barons, uh, is the opera in Austria representing the United States, Miss Porter School, and blah, blah, blah. Miss Lord, wait for it, is the director of the Spam Museum in Austin, Minnesota. Spam. It even got a, yeah, spam. The canned meat. 
Ms. Lord is the executive director, the director, excuse me, of the Spam Museum in Austin, Minnesota? Are you friggin' kidding me? Well, what would Lord Baron Folke Fitzwarren think of that? For that matter, what would Miss Porter, upon hearing this? Jeez. Unbelievable. So, anyway, I won't even get into the groom. He doesn't seem quite as impressive. That is the friggin' funniest thing. It was so unexpected. I mean, there is no way you could get through all of this, this thicket, thicket of fancy schmancy ridiculous names. So I'm trying to figure out. So her parents named their daughter. They had all daughters, it looks like. They named their daughters. I'm just going to go with the first name, not the 500 that come after it. They named their daughters Seville. Uh, Wallace. Like Wallace Simpson, W-A-L-L-I-S. Jesus, maybe she's a relative. Stavely and Dorian. Unbelievable. All right, I'm just saying, these are our betters. I just want you to know that in that that race of life that I was talking about, I assure you that Staley, Savely, Collins, de Montenay, Fitzalan, de Dinan Lord would never have taken a step back. Sorry. Jesus. Un-effing believable. Oh, Milton, you're just amazing. Milton just sent me a video of the exercise I was describing about white or class and class privilege. I'll look at it later. That's wonderful. About kids having to take steps back. Yeah. I will I will flag that so that I don't forget to uh look at it again. Unbelievable. Okay. And so then, if I may continue on uh, with this uh, this so-called classless society, um, it's classless. In, I was just thinking it's classless in one way, <laughs> namely, namely meaning uh, without class, namely meaning a crass, right? We do have a crass society without class, but we have very much a class society every bit as much as the Brits and for 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 that actually I believe people have done upward mobility studies um, of you know if you're born poor and you know the wrong color the wrong the wrong zip code hence the wrong school system all of the wrong stuff if you start off there in the United States and you start off there in England, in Great Britain, 
apparently now studies show you got a better shot at being upwardly mobile in the clearly class society of the UK than you do in the society here where we still, despite reality, like to think of ourselves as the place where if you just work hard, if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can be anything you want to be. <laughs> the McCoys have written me and said, was this a dog wedding? I mean, some owners give their dogs those kinds of pompous names <laughs> and fancy weddings. No, I'm looking at the two of them. They ain't dogs. I mean, they ain't exactly beautiful renditions of Homo sapiens either, but they ain't dogs. No. Seriously. Oh, my God. So... Because this has always been a society that has real disparity in opportunity and in wealth and is growing more so than uh, ever in modern history, um, this is a society in which a lot of uh, non-governmental agencies exist to help uh, people get that leg up, get even close to getting a leg up when they are, through no fault of their own, born into the wrong family, the wrong skin, and the wrong zip code. Um, and I say NGOs, non-governmental, because our government, especially as it's currently constituted, absolutely looks down its nose at the prospect of helping anybody except rich people. So, let's go to a caller before I get into my next harangue. Hello, caller. Uh, hello, Clarence Cannonsburg. Clarence, I'm sorry. You've got so many strikes against you, I don't even know where to start. Uh, <laughs> why? Wrong, uh, wrong zip code. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just uh, you know talking about it. I was, um, for some reason, I got hooked on that show, American Pickers. Okay, so I've never even seen it. Is that people who go around and find stuff at estate sales or stuff, or no? Uh, they go Junction? less to estate sales to, than to. Like very a lot of them, very rural um, people who collect basically junk collectors. Oh, okay. You know. Yeah. But yeah, and uh, but they'll find gems, like, very like old motorcycles that are worth thousands and thousands of dollars. Right. And what I was surprised to see is like old signs, you know, like Coca-Cola signs and things to do with like mobile oil, and and they're and they're paying hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars for some of these signs. And that's something. Now, the reason why I bring it up is because last week I was telling a friend of mine, who happens to be a white guy, um, about, like, you know, getting hooked on it, like, the show. They ran it for, like, all day. And I said, I got hooked on it. And he said, I just noticed, I watch that all the time, and I just noticed that last week that there were never any black people on that show. <laughs> and I said, 
I noticed that too. And I said, but there's a reason for it because 100 years ago, 50 years ago, when the people were collecting this stuff, you know what I mean? Black people weren't allowed to have anything. And the stuff that they did have, they used it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. They, they weren't collecting. Right. You know, they had you know, to use like stuff. Just, they wouldn't have stuff just hanging around for, with no reason. Yeah, and, you know, and, and these are rural. I mean, this, yeah. this one guy was in the middle of nowhere, um, Utah or something, but he had some stuff that was worth a lot of money. Yeah. You know, because, and he had a bunch of property that his family has been on for three or four generations that they homesteaded. Yep. <laughs> you know? Yep. You know, way back when. And then when you brought that up, and I said, you know, I was talking to him, and he just had this look on his face. Well, I never thought of it like that. I said, yeah, you can't. There were no black people homesteading in the Midwest. They just weren't allowed to do it. No, <laughs> and, no. You know, and, and the, um, you know, people get So black there was people. One guy who, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, there was, there was one guy who, when he got out of Vietnam, his first, first unemployment check, he took and bought this old car that he started to fix up. You know what I mean? And make it to a hot rod that he still had. You know what I mean? And now it's worth like forty thousand dollars. <laughs> you know? And I went, yeah, they redlined the black people when they did this. Yeah. Black people weren't allowed to. That's right. <laughs> you know, they got out of the service and they didn't get the home loans and all that stuff for these people. And he goes. I never saw that. I said, yeah, you'll never. I said, it'll be rare. I said, if you see a guy, it might be Fred Sanford on American Pickers. Yeah. <laughs> that's a black guy. I said, I but, said that, that's going to be rare and far between. Right. That so, is absolutely yeah. right. I, you know, and people, yeah, people do not realize that um, black Americans were not, you know, they were, they might have, I just read, did you see how they found, um, uh, the this uh, book written by uh, why am I gonna blank on her name Zora Hurston Zora Neil Hurston is that her name Zora Neil she she was an anthropologist and a novelist uh, black woman um, and she found at that time it was in the twenties or thirties what was thought to be who was thought to be the last living African to be sold to slavers in Africa, stuck on a boat and brought to the United States as a slave. He was 19 years old, and um, she interviewed him. In the 30s, he came. He was brought in in 1860, and supposedly the um, they it was against the law for slave ships to even ply the oceans at that point. Uh, slaves were, you know, yet the slaves you had were the slaves you could could have. You couldn't be importing any more from Africa. But this poor guy was believed to be on the last boat that is known to have come over. They got all the slaves off the boat and burned the boat as evidence. And they believe this year they found they found what was left of that boat. But I did hear about that. What was left of the boat. Yeah. Well right? this guy yeah. this guy 
his account because he remembers. Here is a voice of somebody who was sold into slavery, how he knew nobody else on that ship. He was 19 years old, the horror of the crossing. And then when he got to the United States, how he was separated again from the people he had endured this cross-Atlantic nightmare with and how he said, I cried and cried. I didn't know any, I had come to know them and no one spoke my language. Nobody spoke my language and he was put, you know, sold onto a, ended up on some plantation where he was the only person there who spoke the language he spoke. Um so that even the other slaves, he couldn't talk to them. This guy, what he endured and how he said, I cried every night for my mother. And you get such a sense. And what, 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 why I'm telling the story is that, so he's here for all of four years, and lo and behold, the Emancipation Proclamation comes. And he is told he's free. And he wonders, yeah, so uh, so are you, he expected to be either repatriated or be given some compensation so that he could have a chance to, in fact, be free. And it talks of his anger at emancipation being such a joke. It's a powerful thing. It's apparently, this was a lost book. No publisher would publish it. Um, And it's going to be published, I believe, this summer. And she, of course, is long dead. But what a voice from the past telling us. um, And I guess a lot of people didn't want to um, uh, publish the book. because it's called Barracoon because she being an anthropologist absolutely took down verbatim what her subjects were telling her so she didn't clean up their language I mean here's a poor guy who she interviewed in English but he learned it by hook and by crook as an adult and so his English is not great and apparently there was a sense of who would want to read this garble and it, it was never published. But what a, what a story, and what what a history. And since we Americans, white Americans especially, although Kanye West could take a few courses, um, I was going to make a Kanye West comment after we cut. Yeah, really, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we're learning more. Finally, my God, uh, uh, some of us willing to learn. And of course, there's still a whole. F- 40 50 percent of the population that simply doesn't believe there's any that oh i know i know i know what happened it's not they've been free for uh what hundreds of years or something still still grousing right so they were given nothing nothing yeah that's what they you know coming you know back to american pickers where an old sign I'm telling you, these are old, rusty. I one bet. Of these signs sure. Was buried in the ground. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the guy, the guy basically buried it, 
but by burying it, he kept some of the paint on one side. Uh-huh. The guy paid like $2,500 for it. And I said, that would have been a roof. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, in the middle yeah, of the that's right. Everybody, somebody <laughs> would have just used it. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, so they found the thing. It's a, it, it, and, and the look on his, of, of uh, realization, you know, on, on his face, was, was like he never thought of it. He just thought, you know, that, that I don't know, like, you know, that the, the show was like being racist or something. I said, I, I don't think so. <laughs> I said, it's just that, you know. And those, you know, hundreds of year old things, you know, or a hundred or, you know, 75 year old things, you know, most African Americans, you know, we're talking like during the Jim Crow era and all that kind of stuff. They didn't have anything <laughs> like that. Exactly. You know, they weren't collecting things. Exactly. Collecting things? Nice. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh, my yeah. God. People are so yeah. incapable of seeing outside their own little cocoon, I guess. Yeah, and that's, and that's, and that's, that's, um, that's a, a comedian, Bill Burr, said one time, you, you know, you need, that's why you need diverse friends. <laughs> that, yes, <laughs> you know, yes. the only guy that he's going, that he's, that he's talking to, you know what I mean? That, that, that he never went outside his little bubble, and, yeah. and I had to just, just because of American Pickers, pop it. Okay, I got to be honest. There was one African American guy that I saw on there, and they 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 were some they were selling stuff on the side of the road, Uh you know. And the guys the guys in the truck stopped to see some of his stuff, and he said, and then they said, oh yeah, this is nice stuff. And he goes, oh, it's not mine, it's his. And he points to his white friend next to him. There you go. (laughs) All right. Okay. There you go. It's that, that fascinating. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that story. I want to look that up. Yeah, please <laughs> do. Book, yeah. It's Zora okay. Neale Hurston. I, you know, she's a legendary uh, Harlem Renaissance uh, writer. Ended up writing incredible novels, but she was an anthropologist as well. What's her last name? Hurston. H U R S T O N. Okay. The, the reason uh, you made me pause there for a second because I've recently found out that you know my family name back into the slave days is is Hairston. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Wow. It was like it was like the second largest um, slave owning. Yeah, family. there's a lot of a lot of black Hairstons, aren't there, who have yeah, that slave name, them. and you're one of them. <laughs> yeah, and I'm one of them. Okay. <laughs> my great grandfather was a Hairston. Wow. Wow. Who moved to Pennsylvania from Virginia in the late 1800s. Wow. Well, I'm glad he did, because otherwise I wouldn't know you. So. <laughs> there you go. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Clarence. Thank okay. you. Okay. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye. We have uh, another call? No? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't understand the... Okay. Um, so... I was on my rant about the need in the United States for, you know, people to help people get a leg up. And uh, there was this wonderful uh, story uh, over the weekend about uh, a woman named Sylvia Bloom, who was the daughter of Eastern European immigrants, um, who you know, lived through the Depression, who 
managed to get herself a uh, college education by going to night school as um, as she was working right out of uh, high school. And the f- she became a secretary to this uh, a few lawyers who were just starting up a firm. And she stayed at that law firm <laughs> for 67 years. She was the first secretary in, and she was there, saw many a secretary come and go. For 67 years she stayed and watched that firm grow to having over a 1,000 lawyers in it. Um, she took the subway to her job. And, and, and uh, in the story, there's one, one guy who worked at the firm as well who said he saw her when she was 96 years old trudging out of the subway and heading to work in the middle of a fierce snowstorm. 96 years old, still taking the subway, still going to the same job. And he said, what are you doing here? And she looked at him and said, why, where should I be? I mean, thoroughly confused by, I, I, you know I work, I come to work. The weather, the fact that she's 96, I mean, wow. So I'm sad to report that Sylvia Bloom died, um, I think, in February. And her niece had been um, declared the executor of her estate. And the niece was blown away to find out that Sylvia Bloom was worth over eight million dollars. Sylvia Bloom, who worked her entire life, who lived in a rent-controlled one-bedroom apartment with her husband, who was a retired, I think, firefighter, and then became a teacher. Um, They lived there, I mean, and she just went to work every day. And, you know, I'm sorry, a secretary, even a legal secretary, uh, is not making big bucks. So how the hell did she do it? Well, as a legal secretary and as a secretary to these lawyers, she would do what secretaries always did, everything, right? So she would make them their coffee and she would keep their desks neat and she would do their typing and she would get their laundry and she would blah, blah, blah and this and that. And they would, on occasion, ask her to call their brokers and buy some stock. And she always paid attention to what they were buying. And so when they made a big stock purchase, she would scrape together a little bit of money, and maybe buy a few shares on her own. And over the years, she kept doing that, 
And I guess these lawyers were smart about the stocks they were picking because she just hung on to those stocks, kept investing quietly, taking money, kept not spending money, just living. So, you know, a lot of people say, well, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? You're not move. You could live on Park Avenue. You don't have to take the subway. You don't even have to work. You don't have to get a new pair of shoes, for God's sake. Sylvia Bloom just kept quiet. Even It's not clear if her husband knew she had all this money. But she had it for a reason. She was building up this stockpile, not for herself. She was building it up so she could give it to two specific charities that try to give a leg up to people who weren't born in the right zip code or in the right skin or into the right family. So she gave what is now the largest gift ever given to the Henry Street Settlement, a historic Place on the Lower East Side of New York City that in its illustrious 125-year history helped so many immigrants uh, coming in, helped them, helped them maybe get educated, helped them get jobs, gave them the kind of health care and services, uh, made those things available to them. And I was blown away that the Henry Street Settlement is still active. I know for the Lower East Side is where many uh, Jewish immigrants coming into the United States lived. So I've always known it as a place that helped a lot of you know totally impoverished uh, newcomers uh, to the United States uh, who were uh, Jews from Eastern Europe, give them the kind of help they were willing to give and they existed to give. And so she wanted Henry Street to have it, and she specifically wanted it to go to their Expanded Horizons College Success Program, which helps young disadvantaged kids not only prepare for college, but helps them once they get into one, helps them afford the college and help and doesn't even leave them there helps them succeed in an environment that for many is pretty daunting and foreign so this news just broke because henry street just uh just let people know that they had gotten this bequest um so she had close to i guess nine million dollars she left some to her relatives, and but you know not huge, huge, huge amounts, but left nice bequests to her relatives and to a few friends, and then the rest she wanted to go to kids she never knew, will never know, so that she could have an impact on their lives and then consequently on others' lives and 
have this wonderful ripple effect of nothing but positivity helping those who were not born to advantage. I think somebody like this is the best of the best. I mean, I this is somebody, you know, that we could all work toward emulating in some way, in, in any way. <laughs> Just extraordinary. Um... Her niece said she was a child of the Depression and she knew what it was like not to have money. She had great empathy for others who were needy and wanted everybody to have a fair shake. Do you know how much better the world would be if people were like that? And that brings me back to the rich people who hoard what they have, who make sure that their kids get more and more and more advantage as if they needed it. When what they could do is take a lot of that money. They could still live real nice, real nice, much nicer than Sylvia Bloom. They could still live in a big house and all that kind of stuff. But they could help just one other child, huh? One. You know, every once in a while you hear about these people and it, it just makes my day always to be reminded that there are these quiet people in the world you know, oh my God, he's dead and he had $20 million? Who knew? He never spent a dime. And what? We think of those people as eccentric? We think, why didn't they give themselves? Why didn't they have a nicer house or travel? Or Because that's not where their heads were at. Their heads were in a better place. And obviously a place that didn't need praise. Because she might be, pra be praised now, but is she enjoying it? <laughs> no, I don't think so. There are these people. Uh, the, the New York Times, in doing this story on her, um, points out some of the others that we have heard about in, in, in recent years. There was a guy named Leonard Gagowski uh, in New Berlin, Wisconsin. I know New Berlin, so I know it's not called New Berlin. New Berlin, Wisconsin. He died three years ago and left a $13 million fortune that nobody knew he had. He was a shopkeeper, it says. I'm not sure what that means. $13 million. And he, the same way as Sylvia Bloom, for scholarships to help kids who didn't have money. It's incredible. Anyway, stories like that make my day. They make my day. 
and they challenge me to think about my life and what it is I'm doing with it and uh, what I'm spending money on. Believe me. Roger writes, Minorities have it so easy in the USA, USA. As I always tell my conservative co-workers, black lesbian drug addicts with lots of kids have the world by the tail. With all the over-the-top public assistance they get, freeloading off the backs of us hard-working whites. Can a middle-class white guy get some help around here? Incredible. Okay. So, here's something I loved that I came upon. Oh, actually, no, wait. I want to do this. <laughs> Sorry. Blah, 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 blah. Um, I read this and I thought, why do I have to read this in the New York Times? This was in the Sunday New York Times, I think. Yeah. And this should have been in the Post-Gazette. This should have been in the Philly Inquirer. This should have been in the Tribune Review. This should have been in our local newspaper, which is disappearing by the minute, right? The Sunday paper is now the size of uh, what used to be the Monday paper. Um, there was a front-page story in the New York Times on Sunday about something that's happening in Harrisburg at our state capitol. This is a story that would be of, I think, interest to Pennsylvanians. And I have to read it in a New York newspaper? I'm just saying. So it's a story about some of the Republicans in Harrisburg, um, two in particular, uh, a representative named Tara Tool, and a representative named Nick Micarelli. Um, they're both Republicans, by the way. But here's how the New York Times gets you into the story, and it gets you in. When she is 10 minutes from the Pennsylvania State House, Representative Tara Toole phones the sergeant at arms. A security officer then meets her in the parking lot and escorts her to her office. He stays at her side throughout the day, hovering at her elbow during committee hearings, during debates, during votes on the floor of the House. The reason Representative Tara Toole has a bodyguard that never leaves her side 
can be found a few yards away from her on the House floor. That would be a fellow Republican representative here in Pennsylvania, the aforementioned Nick Micarelli. They sit in the same row in our house, the people's house. In March, Representative Toole obtained an order of protection against Representative Micarelli. Turns out the two of them used to date years ago, years ago. And she claims that he kicked her, that he pinned her by the neck to a wall in the state capitol, and that he had once brandished a gun at her and threatened to kill them both. She, like so many other women, didn't tell anybody feeling it was sort of like something she had done, mistakes she had made that put her in this situation. And it wasn't until the Me Too movement started bubbling up that she, like so many other women, started thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm the victim here. And so she went to the house leadership. And the House in Harrisburg investigated just in March. And guess what? They found her allegations to be credible. And then they found the allegations of another woman who had unfortunately dated this jerk, Micarelli. She happened to be a political consultant in Harrisburg. And it was her realizing that there was this other woman that made Representative Toole say, oh my God, so there's, it was not just me, it was her too. And if I had spoken up earlier, maybe this wouldn't have happened to her. Now, we're seeing this happen in a lot of places, right? And in a lot of, uh, in the Congress, in state houses around the country. Uh, this article says that in uh, the legislatures in Tennessee and in uh, Arizona, uh, legislators have voted to expel their members who have been accused in this way. Um, but, needless to say, that is not what has happened here. The Republican leadership politely asked the guy, uh, maybe you should retire, and he said, no, I'm not going to retire. And anyway, if I just hang on, I won't run for re-election, but if I just hang on, I will have reached the level where I can get a lifetime, right, a lifetime of tons of pension money from 
you, the taxpayers of the great state of Pennsylvania, and health care for the rest of my life. So Mike Terzai and the other Republican leaders said, oh yeah, okay. So instead they gave her a bodyguard and are letting this jerk make it to the end of this term. Uh, needless to say, the Speaker of the House, Mike Terzai, refused to talk to the New York Times about this. Representative Toole has said that after she broke off their relationship six years ago, that she was terrified of in any way going public because she knew he carried a concealed weapon and he had, as she said, threatened her with it. She was truly afraid he would kill her. Uh, now, however, get this, he can't bring his concealed weapon. They're not letting him bring his gun in to the House chamber. There's a whole bunch of members of the House, by the way, who are packing heat while they're in there. And I would hazard a guess that every single one of them is a Republican. The other woman, by the way, a prominent unnamed political consultant in Harrisburg, is, is unnamed because she accuses this SOB, Micarelli, of raping her. And she said she had informed co-workers the next day but did not report it to law enforcement, again, because women don't. But the Me Too movement has given a lot of women courage. And these two are two more. One of the other female legislators in uh, Harrisburg uh, told the New York Times that this is the most misogynistic place I have ever worked. And the political consultant who was raped, by the way, the, uh, the, the DA is now involved in that. Um, the political consultant, it says here, whose clients have included prominent state officials, uh, said the Republican House uh, leadership had failed totally in its responsibilities, and her quote is clearly they have zero interest in helping women, but they do have interest in protecting Micarelli so he can be taken care of for the rest of his life by you and me. You don't think we deserve to hear this story? Mike Terzai, who's up for re-election in uh, eh, November, yeah, I think we should have known this. Now we do. Spread the word. There is a woman running against her as I help her. Get these SOBs out. They are an outrage. Oh, well, I feel better now. Okay, you guys. I'm not even going to say it. Yes, I am.
Go Pens. And uh, I'll see you tomorrow. Have a good one. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.